Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 70 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here in the vomitorium, as I always am with my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight, Dave? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff, and you are not always here. Uh, I'm always here. When I'm here, you are also here. Okay. Right, so... Thanks maybe, for the maybe, clarification. Maybe my grammar was not precise I enough. don't know, but this <laughs> this is the septuagesimal episode, isn't it? Yes, number 70. Number 70. Yeah. Who would have thought when we started with number one, we would get to 70? Not me. That's, it seems like last year, two years ago now. Two, is it almost two years A ago? long time. Yes, excellent. So tonight? Yes, we're talking about, it's something we've teased in, yes, in earlier episodes. That's or we, correct. Or we, we brought up. We're talking we've threatened, about, I think, is the term you're looking for. We're talking about the Elgin Marbles Correct. Tonight. Yes, that, this famous, um, uh, well, I'm going to use the word theft. Okay, um, you go ahead with of that. The, uh, of the Parthenon sculptures mm-hmm. by uh, one Lord Elgin way back in the early part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about his story. And we're going to talk about a little bit about the controversy that remains to this day about uh, where these marbles should b- be. And this is based largely on a book that you've read. Yes, right. So our main source tonight is this book here for our uh, YouTube viewers, uh, is The Elgin Affair by Theodore Vettos, which uh, was published in 1997. And a lot of things have happened since then, uh, but it's a really nice, concise, readable for the most part, unbiased account mm. of the of this whole uh, affair. Now, see, I haven't read this particular one, but mm-hmm. it's, it's going on my list right away. Yes. Uh, Vetos is a Greek name. Is Vretos. Vretos, yes. Vretos. Sorry. He's yes. a Greek, isn't he's, it? He's a Greek, right. Okay. So he's got a little bit of kind of so personal gonna, stake in this. I'm yeah. guessing he has an axe to grind. He's, li- he's got some olives to press. A little say. bit. A little bit. I think he, he has a soft touch, but at the end of the day, he's he's very much pro-repatriation. Um, okay. Right? Bring the marbles back yep. from the British Museum. Yes, exactly right. But before we get there, yep. we have to give a shout out. We do. And yes. this goes to Ely Heisinger. Ely Heisinger, one of my favorite students yes. I had back in the day. And, and she's actually someone I've known since she was uh, uh, quite a young girl. Really? When she was a 12-year-old obsessed with Harry Potter. And, ah, how and, did you cross paths with Ely? Uh, we were part of kind of a, a, uh, a friend group with her parents. And, okay. And we hung out together. And wow. So I got to know her and her sisters very well. So she was forewarned in terms of uh, consuming any of your instruction. Pretty much. Okay. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So I had her as a student in a pre-college program. Right. And she took some Latin from me wow. and an extremely bright yes, young woman. Yes, a very bright young woman. She, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, she took art and architecture with me. She did. Yep. Yep. A very good student. Yeah. And uh, so she says, yes, of course you can give me a shout out. Right. I don't have anything particularly in mind for you to say. Yes. But I do recall Jeff singing a translated version of Maroon 5's <laughs> Sugar in Latin class that I would love to hear again. Uh, I don't know if that survived the computer transfers over the the years. Right? Now, Maroon 5 is yeah. a rock group, right? Yeah, pop. A pretty popular one. Pop band, Adam Levine. He's the main singer, yes. right? He's yes. got the, the tattooed sleeves. and he, he tattooed all over, all okay. over his body. And and uh, he went on to some reality TV fame. Is that right? Is that that doesn't surprise me? I, I, I don't, don't know. know. I mean, he's kind of one of these ubiquitous okay. uh, figures, right? Pop stars. So, but what yeah. is Sugar about, and why did you translate it? I was, I was trying to kind of you know trying to keep it fun. You're in trying class. to keep it. This sounds so like you. What I would did, I would every once in a while I would translate a few lines of, of a song that was popular at the time. Okay. Put it up on the screen, 
and see if any of the students could kind of, could guess what the song is, right? And then mm. the the, uh, the reward, so to speak, is they could guess it, then I would have to sing ah, uh, maybe a verse or a chorus of this. Right. So, and so I believe, yeah, uh, Ely and there was somebody else in the class who got it fairly quickly. Oh, so right? then you had to sing some. I had to sing a little bit. It was, All right. it was a lot of fun. Okay, so how did you translate the word sugar? Uh, I, I, I soccer room. That's, there you go. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so. It does it. Yep. So Ely says she's uh, technically not an architect yet. No, I think she just finished a, a master's program at University of Michigan in architecture. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, but she's on her way. Right. Yeah. And um, she says that she learned so much about architecture in grad school. It continues to learn uh, now that I am working in the residential architecture sphere. I enjoy seeing the ways architecture can be used as a tool to shape the lives of people. And I'm grateful to contribute to that, even if I'm early on in my career. Yes. So she, this this kid's going places. Yes. Well, we need, I would say, um, here's some aesthetic bias. Yeah. Uh, that's what you tuned in for, right, listener? Aesthetic bias. <laughs> I think architecture needs more persons who are familiar with classical forms. Oh, without a doubt. That's what I think. Without a doubt. So, right. So I think that her, her classical background is only going to serve her. It's going to help. Very well. Yeah. And beatify the landscape, maybe. Indeed. Is that too much to hope for? No. No. no but it's a lot of pressure to put on you, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm with you. She can bear it. Yeah. Uh, so Dave, you got uh, you going to tackle our opening quote? I get the ope quote. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so let, let me set this up just a All right. Bit. You set so, it up. This is not from Vretos. Uh, this is, comes from an article written by uh, the late... Uh, and in my opinion, great. Christopher Hitchens. Do you have any opinion on, on Hitch? Not much. Not much. I mean, turn a phrase. I don't go much beyond that. Okay. Um, I, w- I was a great admirer, admirer of him. Um, I, th- I think he was a great lover of the classics. Yes. I know he ruffled a lot of feathers. I mean, he was a famous atheist. Right. Um, and wrote a lot about that. I thought he argued in that arena a lot against a lot of straw men. Mm. Um, but I thought he was always a, uh, a fair debater, a, a clear thinker. And um, I, I liked his devotion to the classics. Okay. So in this 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 quote from this this article, um, he's very much on the pro repatriation. Give bring, them back. Give them back. Side. Okay. Right. So take and it away. The name of this article is Acropolis Now. Acropolis Now. I, I, I don't think uh, Hitch himself uh, got to title it. I don't think he did. That's Vanity Fair. That, That's below him. That is below. Okay. Him. <laughs> so what is this uh, this article from? Is this? It's from it's from a Vanity five, Fair ten article. Years ago, it's uh, like it was two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. It, it was just before. The new Acropolis Museum opened. Oh, right. He got like a pre-tour. Right. Of, uh, he was up on the scaffolding on the Acropolis. And we're going to talk about that museum a little bit, aren't we? we? Yes, that's, okay. that's crucial to the argument. All right, so yes. here's the Ope quote. Yep. Hitchens says, Ever since Lord Byron wrote his excoriating attacks on Elgin's colonial looting, first in Child Herald's Pilgrimage, 1812, and then in The Curse of Minerva, 1815, there has been a bitter argument about the legitimacy of the British Museum's deal. I've written a whole book about this controversy and won't oppress you with all the details. Thank you. (laughs) But we just make this one point. If the Mona Lisa had been sawed in two during the Napoleonic Wars Mm -hmm. and the separated halves had been acquired by different museums in, say, St. Petersburg and Lisbon, would there not be a general wish to see what they might look like if reunited? If you think my analogy is overdrawn, consider consider this. The body of the goddess Iris is at present in London while her head is in Athens. The front part of the torso of Poseidon is in London, and the rear part is in Athens, and so on. This is grotesque. Yes, right. How do you feel about that that argument? I feel I would feel bad for the museum that ended up with the bottom half of the yes. Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> well, any any part of the Mona Lisa though is going to be gorgeous. I I see that it is an analogy, and I think it's apt for the most part. Here may be one difference though. Uh, the Mona Lisa, Da Vinci's painting from I don't know late fifteenth century, early sixteenth. I don't have the exact date. Yeah, it's a Renaissance painting. It is uniquely Italian. 
Mm-hmm. It hasn't become a part of the Western heritage in the same way that uh, the Parthenon and its marbles um, okay. have. Now, I know the term Western heritage is to many people fraught, mm-hmm. but uh, you're listening to this podcast, so you were forewarned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, when my point is, I think that uh, the, the citizens of London have a little bit more of a claim on the Elgin marbles than, say, um, folks in St. Petersburg do to half of the Mona Lisa. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair I'm enough. trying to be very modest because right. if I were a Greek, I would probably be very upset about this. Sure. Sure. Right. So the argument of repatriation has um, a, quite a bit of pull. Sure. Exactly. Right. And I think Hitchens is also he's also making the argument that um, all of these things that are that are scattered about. Um, only they need to be considered as a complete whole. Right. Right. And so in the same way that you'd want two halves of a painting together, um, you would want to to view and experience all of these things as much as possible right. together as as a work of art in and of itself. You'd want right. two halves living in just one museum. Yes. Exactly right. Exactly right. That's yeah. Phil Collins, isn't it? What? Is that Phil Collins? Two hearts living in just one mind. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Right? Yes. Phil Collins fan? No, you know I don't like him at all. Is it... <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. I don't like him at all. I have trouble keeping track of your irritation. It's hard. Right. I know. Right, exactly. It's a full-time task. Yeah. Maybe we should hire someone else just to write those things down. <laughs> so what are we going to give the listener and viewer this evening? All right. So we are going to uh, do a fairly brief walkthrough of Lord El- Elgin's life. And um, I think you know, as we've kind of teased uh, on earlier episodes that uh, it's no secret that I'm more kind of in the repatriation camp. Yeah, you like um, to take ridiculous positions and, generally. And, and I had and I had a strong kind of animus against Lord Elgin from what I knew. Reading this book made me much more sympathetic to him. Oh, really? Yes. And so I think my my stance has certainly been softened. Okay. So you uh, were pulled toward the center a little bit. A little bit. Moderation. A, a Maybe little. I'll be pulled there too. Right. So the, the, the man is not without his problems and his issues, but okay. um, he lived an, an incredible, interesting, fraught, difficult life. Mm. And um, I certainly walked away with a lot more sympathy for the man. Yes. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of walk through his life, kind okay. of walk broad him to Athens, to the marbles, um, bringing them back. And then we're going to end kind of talking a bit about the controversy where it stands yes. today and and what might be some answers to this problem. Right. Yeah. Before we dive in, though, can I give a cordregendum? Please. Something that has to be corrected? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, a, a recent shout out to one of our uh, devoted fans, Paul Jabor, we incorrectly said Paul was a resident of Australia. He's not? No, he lives in England. Oh, goodness. Yes. Now, that's an insult. It is. He took it with good grace, okay. though. He was not uh, overly, um, what's the word I'm looking for, melodramatic about it. But right. we got to correct the record. Absolutely. Okay. Right. Sorry, sorry Paul. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, well, oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So let's get right into it. All and right. We've got The Elgin Affair, Theodore right. Vretos. I'm sorry, Vretos. It's Vretos, yes. 1997. Yes, right. right. So what does he tell us about Lord Elgin? First, so are you, uh, again, just before we jump okay. in. Okay. Um, Elgin, I've also heard Elgin. I, you, I Any don't opinion know. on this? No. Okay. Isn't there a famous painting, Elgar? Elgar? Mm-hmm. Sounds like, like a, a Marvel villain. No, no. No? There is a famous painter, Elgar. Elgar, okay. Or Eljar, if you will. <laughs> so I don't know what to do with the G there. Just stick it there and keep it soft. Okay. Elgin. Elgin. All right. So Lord Elgin, his name uh, was Thomas Bruce, uh, born in 1766 and uh, lived until 1841. Mm-hmm. He was the seventh Earl of Elgin. Okay. Um, but also the 11th Earl of Kincardine. Yeah, weren't six Earls enough? You would think so. What does this mean? Oh, what well, he's, he's seventh in the hereditary line. Yes. Okay. So he's from two, descended from kind of two of these 
hoity-toity, fancy-pants houses, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Titles were hereditary. You didn't have to do a lot to get the title. No. But sometimes you had to do something to retain it. Right, right, right. And so, and in reading about Elgin, it, in some ways it reminded me a lot of um, Julius Caesar in a way, that, mm. that he... He came with these titles, you know, Julius, he came from a noted family. Right. But that didn't necessarily mean that he was flush with cash, right? You know, so the the um, uh, the Julian clan or right. his family was... Patrician. Patrician. It was, it was um, you know, had high status. Yes. But not necessarily a lot of necessary kind of pull, just economic like, pull. Just like Catiline, right? Yes. Famous name, but not a lot of resources behind it. Exactly right. And so that's what struck me about Elgin as well. So he had these these, these fancy titles. And of course, that opened all kinds of doors when it came to right. um, you know, the upper crust of, of Scottish and British society. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a, a major power broker when it came to kind of his own personal economic means. So Thomas right. Bruce. Yep. And he traces his lineage back yes. to Robert the Bruce. Yes. The first king of Scotland. Correct. All the way back, you know, 400 years before yes. Elgin himself. Places, uh, what's that? First king of Scotland, 1306 to yep. 1329. Yes, exactly. I, I'm reading notes here. Yes, just yes. so no one thinks <laughs> I have that date stored in my head because I do not. No. But I do remember the scene in Braveheart where right. Robert the Bruce approaches um, Melva Gibson, remember? Yes, 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 and, yes. And, uh, you know, William Wallace says, you're the, you're the future. You've got to unite the the warring Scottish clans. I won't give anyone the Scottish accent. And <laughs> on we go from there. Right, right. right. Yeah, I remember that the guy who played Robert Bruce in that movie, just kind of furrowed browed and looking yep. kind of worried um, all the time. And quite passive. He has to play second fiddle to William Wallace. Right. Um, but I thought he was a little underplayed. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Go back and, re- and revisit that, uh, so Thomas, that film. So Thomas Bruce... Mm-hmm. The um, Lord Elgin, seventh Earl Thomas Bruce, has all of this weight on his shoulders that he is the the heir of Robert the Bruce, and he's right. the eleventh Earl of Kincardine, and so forth. Right. So he. The, so the, what's he going to do? Well, so the the Elgin estate is this large uh, manse called Broomhall, it's still there as a as a. Is it a, called Broomhall? Broomhall, or is it called Brumel? Brumel. <laughs> do you need a tissue? <laughs> I guess in a in a Scottish brogue they wouldn't they would be, say Broomhall. They wouldn't say Broom Hall. I don't think they would well, it say looks like Broom Hall. Broom Hall, <laughs> like a Michigander, West Michigander. Right, Broomhall. Where can uh, excuse me? Where can I find the whisk? That would be <laughs> that would be in the Broomhall. Oh man. Yeah. All right. Uh, so and apparently, as as I was doing some reading, the uh, Robert the Bruce's sword still hangs in, oh my. in Broomhall. Right. So I mean, it's a it's a fairly weighty. Uh, legacy that he's got to carry and, and and live up to. All right, so I I've got in our notes and and uh, Mishka can put it up on the screen the the um, the coat of arms okay. for the Elgin family, which right. struck me probably as unintentionally funny. Okay, so you got the, you got a couple of these guys and they're wearing kind of um, you know ivy. Uh, Ivy wreath diapers, yeah, and kind of, uh, Heraclean clubs, Bo- boxer briefs, kind boxer of. briefs, exactly right. And they had the Heraclean clubs. You're right, right. and they're and then, mirror images of one another. Yeah, they're kind of looking suspiciously at each other across the shield. But the same person, not a lot of no, not a lot of uh, what it's what I'm looking for. Creativity in the design of this insignia. No, the House of Winkle has a much oh, better. My gosh, exactly. Right. It's much better, isn't it? It's much better, exactly. But much Twizzlers better. growing out of the background. <laughs> exactly what right. A, what else? Um, you got there's some nice, uh, nice slices of cheese in right. there. Exactly right. Yeah, any, it's a any, Diet Coke. Any lineage <laughs> of uh, royalty among the Winkles? No, you know what Winkle means in Dutch. I don't want to know. It just means store. Store. The simple, humble shopkeepers. Oh are, yeah. Are, are the uh, 
or other people in my family. You, you fly into Eshkipol Airport, you can visit the Gift Winkel. The Gift Winkel. Yeah, the gift shop. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so we've got the 7th <laughs> Earl of Elgin and the 11th Earl of Kincardine. Yes. And this tor- terrible insignia and the Latin inscription right at the top. Yeah. Fuimus. Yes, Fuimus. We used to be. We used to, We were. We were. <laughs> Uh, that's not so good. <laughs> it's not so good. I know. I was going to ask you. I mean, what am I missing there? Is it like we've been and always have been here? Is I what, think that's is it. Is that kind of the sense? I think I would translate it as something like we've arrived. We've arrived. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or we are established. Right. Or can't touch this. Can. <laughs> Like we, we, we've reached the top. <laughs> we've reached the top, right? Yes. So don't we came over on the Mayflower. Exactly. Is the idea. So don't step to us with our ivy diapers and clubs. That's right. Exactly. So where did Elgin go, Lord Elgin? Sorry, uh, Thomas Bruce, with all of this great royal weight behind him. Right. So uh, as I understand it, and again, I'm no expert at, at by any means. No at, one would accuse you of that. Oh, okay. Thank you, sir. Um, as I understand it, uh, men like like Bruce, like Lord Elgin, would be expected to kind of you know, serve the, the mm-hmm. crown. Yes, all right, and and so he did this. He he entered into the military as he was expected to do. He had a long military career, kind of in and out. You know, ultimately reaching the um, the rank of lieutenant general. Mm. Um, That's pretty high. It's pretty high. And he, apparently, he showed fairly early on as a young man a diplomatic skill. Hmm. He could communicate well. He could speak well. He could he could solve problems. Hmm. And so um, he's quickly shuffled off into that arena. Okay. And so not going to distinguish himself on the field of battle. No, but maybe in the salon. In the salon, right? Mm-hmm. So there are, I think, just a couple of paintings of him that survive, and hmm. he um, he appears as, as a kind of slight man, a little bit wispy. Okay. You might say so. He's not a he's not a hulking, right? Uh, character, imposing character. No Herculean club. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't look like any like a anything grass like these diaper. guys. Right. Right. But then he gets married. He gets married um, to a uh, this one of the things. That, my favorite things about this book is um, the story of his wife. Uh, is remarkable. Mm. Uh, he marries into a very wealthy family, a family that's much wealthier than he is, um, the Nisbet family, and marries Mary Nisbet. She's 21 years old um, in 1799, and she proves herself to be, uh, she throws herself into Elgin's interests. So he's 33 years old at the time. Yes. So I'm doing my arithmetic, and how old yep. is she? 21. 21. Yep, so okay. she's a, uh, about 12 years apart. Young, a young girl, and you know, as someone in her station, Probably hasn't been a lot of time outside of the mm-hmm. whatever her brumel was, and she's thrown into this um, into this whirlwind. Right, and so he they get she they get married, and just a, a couple of months later, he was sailing off to Constantinople mm. to take up this position as ambassador uh, to the uh, Ottoman Empire. Right, so he's going to be the liaison between the Brits and the Turks. And does she go with him? She does. Okay. And um, there's all kinds of stuff that okay, so we're skipping over here, but Vratos talks about this long ship journey that they take, oh, yeah. right? Um, you know, through the Straits of Gibraltar, they stop at Malta. They're Dangerous. Big, and of course, they're expected to kind of call on all of these okay. celebrities and royalties along the way. And it must it, have seemed very exotic to them. Yes. Coming from where they did in Brummel. Exactly right. Now Elgin had a little bit more world experience, but she had none. But he talks about how she she um, was you know battling bouts of seasickness, mm. but um, no dramamine. No in those dramamine. Days. But she's got her she's got her Plato, she's got her Aristotle, she's oh. got her Cicero. She's reading. I got to read this book. Yes, right. So she's she was she was remarkable, <clears throat> and and then of course she's kind of expected. You know, once they get to Constantinople, she's the hostess, right? So okay. she has to kind of run the household and throw all these parties mm-hmm. and. Um, but, 
virtually just kind of learning on the fly. That's incredible. So I walked. I, I came in with. I, I knew nothing about her. But, right. Um, she Mary was, Nisbet. She must have been a remarkable woman. Well, travel in those days, if I may digress for a moment, very different than now. When when we go to some place new. Yeah. Do you do quite a bit of research? Check out the streets. Look at the pictures. Where am I going to stop? What gift winkle am I going to? I do. Pop into. I do. You couldn't do that. No. In times past. If there was anyone in their immediate orbit who had been uh, to Turkey before, they had to go find that person. Yes. There were no photographs, exactly. and they had to get an eyewitness uh, narrative account. I suppose they could read some books, but there were illustrations and drawings. Right. Not at all like what we have today. You can take a video tour of your final destination. Exactly right. There's almost no reason to do it at all, to go there at I all. I feel right? that sometimes, <laughs> which is why sometimes when I'm about to visit a new location, I deliberately maintain a certain amount of ignorance. Just to kind of... To because I want to be surprised. surprised. Yeah. I want to see it with my own eyes. I hear that. Mine own eyes exactly. the first time, not yeah. see it through someone else's the first time. Yes. Often like when we're on, on road trips with, with my wife, right. my wife is very quick... Let's just plug it into Google Maps, you know. Hmm. So, and I'm you know, like, I want to find it on my yeah, own, right? That could be a gender yeah. difference. It is. She says, "What kind of a hobunk town are we in?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and maybe it's not a gender difference. You, you tend to overdo that gender difference thing on here. I just want to say, really? Yeah, on the podcast. That's you're putting that on me. I'm trying to cast you as the chauvinist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. Anyway. But, I mean, also speaking of uh, the book, talks about you know he's trying to arrange things over there and you know by letters, right? And, you know, how long it must have taken a letter to come from Three Constantinople weeks. to London. Minimum, I would imagine. Right? Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. And trying to keep anything, um, you know, running smoothly or, or, mm. or, or, you know, trying to be a diplomat from a distance. I don't know how they did it. And this was the age of Napoleon, right? Right. And so he finds himself kind of walking into a bit of a, a hornet's nest mm. there. And so um, my sense is, and I could have read this wrong from Vretos, but my sense is Elgin didn't really want to be the ambassador in Constantinople. What he wanted to be, he wanted to be close to Athens. Okay. Because he gets swept up into this this Greek fever, this mm-hmm. kind of this romanticism that we right. were talking about uh, a, a few episodes back. Is this similar and to Saturday Night Fever? It's uh, less uh, less disco moves. Okay. Right? <laughs> the bottoms are less belled. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so he he thought this would be kind of a plum, easy position. Right. right? Not much not much going on. Um, I mean, England was not at war with the no. Turks, and but Napoleon kind of throws himself into this. You know, he's invading yeah, Egypt, where you know the Ottomans that was part of the Ottoman Empire. Right. And they, so you know, Napoleon takes Egypt, he loses it, he takes it again, and so um, uh, Elgin finds himself in kind of this this unexpected position of like he's got to be the broker between these mm. two powerhouses. Mm. Right. So you know, the Ottoman Empire is, is starting to kind of crumble and fall right. apart at this point, and uh, France, Napoleon is on the ascendant. And he's got a very you know touchy a touchy right. position, so he he um he goes there. Um, my sense is that he thought, oh, this will be easy. I got to sit in my fancy house. I can right. go down to Athens, um, and I can indulge in this these interests in, in these right. antiquities. It's Philhellenism, right? So um so one of the things I took away from Elgin is it seems that his original plan he was not going there to plunder anything. Of course not. Right? What do you mean? Of course not. Do you think that any respectable English gentleman goes off and says, mm, I'm going to plunder? You've heard of the British Empire, have you? <laughs> yeah, but okay. I don't think it was based on plunder. No, there, was a, there was a lot of plundering going there on. There was a lot of taking yes. and some of it illegal and immoral. <laughs> that's plundering. <laughs> yes, but I'm saying that's not how they 
they conceived of what they're doing. I'm making a, I'm trying to make an ethical point okay. that everyone always thinks they're doing something right. Okay, I got you. We okay. always justify the right. nature of our behavior, even if others think, and rightly so, that it's really bad. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I'm picking at words, as, all right. as is my want. So I guess what what I'm all I'm doing here is I'm, I'm talking through is is the way that I always heard this story is that he was I going see. there. To plunder. Cartoonish. C- yes, cartoonish, right. Yeah, so he was... may have, in fact, ended up plundering. Yes. I'm not disputing that. Yep. I just doubt it was his actual motive. No. I'm going to go steal from the Athenians. It certainly was not his original plan. Right. right. So he makes the he um, he makes these kind of frenzied, hurried um, uh, arrangements uh, to hire draftsmen and mm-hmm. painters and architects. And what he wants is... He wants people there on the ground in Athens. He's, you know, he knows that he's going to have to be in Constantinople much of the time. So he wants this team working there in Athens, drawing and painting, making right. plaster casts of these things. Right. That's what he wants to bring back. Right. And right. a draftsman, of course, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is a person who makes uh, architectural drawings of buildings and other things, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. So he hires this guy, uh, he hires an Italian guy, Lucieri, mm-hmm. who becomes kind of his captain, his man on the ground there to kind of run this. Um, uh, while, while Elgin can't be there. And um, this is what he really wants. And mm-hmm. He wants to bring these kinds of things back. It's like, you know, he's, he, he's just going to take some photographs. Right. right? And, and that's all he's going to bring back. He's always going to leave, leave footprints behind. So is right? the story going to be, as we move along, that things began to snowball? Yes. So once Elgin um, visits Athens, I mean, he goes up in the Acropolis and he's completely just, you know, it, it's... It's better than he could ever imagine. Well, who isn't blown away by it? Right. Yeah. It is it, breathtaking. It is breathtaking, right? And so he's blown away and and so he wants he starts pushing these guys. I want more, I want more right. casts, I want more drawings, I want and, this. And a cast, right? Just yeah. again to make sure we're all on the same page, mm-hmm. is when you take an object and you encase it. Yes. Is that right? Yes, right. So In um Plaster. Plaster of Paris. Mm-hmm. And so you get a, a kind of an imprint and then you can make a replica. Exactly right. So that's what he wants. He, that's what he wants for... Uh, and again, we, uh, he also... He does, he's not bringing this back to... These things back to put in a museum. He wants this for himself. This sure. is his own collection, right? He's going to decorate the walls of Brumel with these with mm-hmm. these things. and um, But it quickly becomes more complicated. And so he starts... And Vretos never... I don't think Vretos knows nothing. Anybody knows really where kind of the, the script flips... But he's much more intensely interested in um, making records of and ultimately taking pieces of the Parthenon because he's so in love with this this building. Mm-hmm. And the most perfect building ever designed, right? As it, some people say, exactly right, right. Um, and so um, one of the, the problems he runs into is that um, the, the local Turk officials start to kind of hmm, smell money, mm-hmm. right? And so. Um, he has to kind of he has to pay a fee every time he goes up on the Acropolis. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Something's never changed. Right. But one of the, the the extreme headaches that he runs into is that it's never kind of clear who's in charge. I see. So you have all of these different Turkish titles. You know, there's the Sultan at the top. Then you have your Pashas. Um, you have I wrote this down. This down. Dizdars and Kamakams. They're all different levels of kind of mm-hmm. of, of authority. Now a, a firman, right, yeah. is not a person but a legal document. A legal right? document, right? And eventually he got a firman. Yes. from somebody. From somebody. Although this right. firman does not exist anymore. Ah, uh, so there's some doubt about whether it's legitimate or he, he claims he had it. I mean, mm. just because it can't be found in a Turkish archive doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right? right? Isn't this um, part of the game? though I don't mean Turks of the early 19th century in particular, but isn't this part of the game that people play when they are seeking to 
you know, take a lot of money from someone who doesn't have all the facts. They constantly change yes. the individual who's in charge. Yes, exactly. Have yeah. you ever been to purchase a, <laughs> I don't know, in a used item somewhere? Oh, yeah. I know. I, yes, exactly. Who's right. in charge here? Right. Well, you're not going to get a straight answer because they don't know exactly how much you're willing to spend yet. So they pass you around from person to person. Yes, it's a classic It's a classic scam. It is. Right. And it's very effective. Right. So Fredos talks about how... Because they've got all the knowledge. So, so Fredos talks about how Elton shows up you know, at the Acropolis, and every day there's a new guy, right? And charging a different amount, and he's going crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, he's again, he's coming from England, where things are run, you know, or at least you know, uh, you know, he's used to the military, right? There should be some... every morning you wake up, there's beans and some <laughs> other terrible food waiting yeah, for you, bangers and maybe some mash, correct? Right, and so um, he finally he he writes to the Sultan. Hmm. Um, the Sultan doesn't reply, but he finally, yes, he, the, so the, the, he arranges, he gets this firman, this, this, um, this contract. Mm-hmm. And in this contract, he, uh, he claims uh, the authority to now, not just kind of to paint and to, and to cast, but to put scaffolding up on the, on the Acropolis and start taking a closer look. And then ultimately he starts taking things down. Is there any possibility this was Mary's idea? Um, you know, we don't really know. I mean, okay. I mean, a number of letters of, of, of her sur- uh, survive. Most of they are, are kind of fawning support of what her husband's mm, doing. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if, if, I don't think we can kind of point to her that she was, you know, she was whispering in his ear. It, pretty clear. I mean, Elgin kind of, I think he kind of, he, he fell so head over heels in love with this stuff. He said, I got to have it. Right. Yep. So, and whether he did it legally and, and, you know, what does it even mean when you're talking about um, a place where uh, nobody knows who's in charge? Well, in the first place, right, did the Turks have a right to Athens? In one sense, no, it was a right gained by conquest, right? right? The fall of Constantinople in 1453. Yeah. And then for 400 years almost, the Turks dominate uh, Greece. Yes. In a way that's really not legitimate in anybody's view that I'm aware of. Right. So, yeah. So if you're looking for a kind of a foundation of legality, right. you're not really going to find it on either side. of Right. This. And what was uh, Elgin supposed to do? Right. Take a plebiscite of the existing Athenian citizens. Right. Are you OK with me taking your stuff? <laughs> they may have said, well, yes, because we don't want the Turks to have it. Right. Well, yeah, uh, maybe. I don't maybe. know. I don't know. I think like a guy like Hitchens would say that what Elgin should have done was stick with his original plan. Take back drawings and paintings. Leave it at that. Even if it meant that they may have been ruined? The not the drawings and paintings, but the, the original artifacts. The artifacts themselves? Yeah. Um, I mean I get I don't get this well, well let's go on. We'll kind of okay, see where this goes, right. right? I'm trying to short short circuit the uh no, the no, argument a little bit. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's and that that's uh, a necessary kind of pushback against this. Mm-hmm. Um Rathaus, uh includes this um eyewitness account from a certain uh, Edward Daniel Clark. Okay. Who was a kind of a rival of Elgin? He was over in, in Greece doing similar kinds of things. And before we get that, can we talk yes. a little bit about Elgin's health problems? Oh yeah, yeah, because so, that's really interesting, right? So apparently, not long after arriving at Constantinople, there's a wave of plague, hmm. as there always seems to be back then, right? Just just back then, just ba- oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, serious, you know, uh, you know bubonic like plague right. sweeps through Constantinople, and apparently he catches catches it, survives, of course, but um, it completely eats away his nose Oof. right and this is the interior the exterior exterior well, a little Ooh. bit of both right okay. so he and so he's left without a nose for the the rest of his life that's tough um, like so many of the statues he was taking <laughs> yes poetic justice perhaps right so um and this just dis- this disturbed him as you as you understand to no end you know? right and um 
his wife Mary was also you know she, uh, she was devoted to him, but she I mean she found him very difficult to look at. Yeah, I know? imagine. And then not only that, rumors started to spread that it wasn't the plague, but it was syphilis. Okay. And so these rumors dogged him for the rest of his life that, of uh, various affairs that he had, and mm. that's why his his nose was eaten up. We don't really know. We don't yeah. really know. Um, so he, there are all kinds of, and then add to that kind of the headaches of trying to negotiate peace between the Ottomans and the French. Um, Elgin, in the case of in the interests of Britain, though, right? Yes, those those are the individuals he represented. Right, exactly. He's trying to find how can I advance British interests and kind of play both sides. Triangulate. Yes. So, um, Vretels includes this eyewitness account from this Edward Daniel Clark, okay. who was a kind of another Elgin in Greece. He brought a lot of um, stuff back to to um to to England a lot of his his finds sit in the one of the museums in Cambridge. Well, people have uh, been bringing coins and um manuscripts forever. Forever. Practically. Right. And that's I guess winked at a little more, not anymore. Now there's very strict international laws. Right. Uh but at the time, I guess it's just the size of the things he took that were so I guess remarkable. so. Uh, maybe that that's what it is. Yes, exactly. These 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 tons and tons of, of marble objects crated up and put it on ships, mm. taken away. Right. So read us yeah. what uh, right. eyewitness Edward Daniel Clark. So says. he watched. He was watching as um, uh, as Elgin's men were were taking things off the off the Parthenon. He writes: Some workmen employed under Lucieri's direction were engaged in making preparation by means of ropes and pulleys for taking down the metopes. Those, those these square sculptures of uh, kind of uh, uh, yes. on the, the top of the right. Uh, Let right me describe the, it for just a second, please. I mean, you know, go ahead. Uh, add to your description. Yes, I was I was struggling for a kind of exactly well, to describe I'll a throw you a line here. Okay. So, a metope, like you say, is the square part between the triglyphs. There you go. Which are the three carved portions, and then there's a tiny little flat space in between where you can put what's called boss relief. Right. Yes. Uh, sculpture. So it's not in the round. You can't look all the way around the statue, but it, it appears like it's emerging from the stone. Exactly. And they're miniatures and they're supposed to be narrative. Right. You connect them all together, like flipping a book, you see a story. Yes, exactly right. So um, they should all be viewed in the same place, perhaps. Oh, I right. see where you're going with that. <laughs> so um, Elgin wants to take these down. Right? So he says, uh, for taking down the metopes where the sculptures remain the most perfect. The Dizdar, one of these Turkish flunkies, um, himself came to view the work, but with evident marks of dissatisfaction. And Lucieri told us that it was with great difficulty he could accomplish this part of his undertaking from the attachment the Turks entertained towards a building which they'd been accustomed to regard with religious veneration and had converted into a mosque. We confess that we shared the Muhammadan feeling in this instance, and we would gladly see an order enforced to preserve rather than destroy such a glorious edifice. Right. So a good reminder to our audience. So um, the Parthenon had gone through many changes it had uh, been a shrine to the Virgin Mary yes. for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And then in the t- Turkish uh, occupation, it became a mosque. Correct. And that's the that's the the, the form that we right. Elgin finds it in. And yeah. the word here, Mohammedan, is an old-fashioned word, of course, for just Islam. Islam, right. exactly. Uh, continue, continuing on, after a short time spent in examining the several parts of the temple, one of the workmen came to inform Lucieri that they were going to lower one of the metopes. We saw this fine piece of sculpture raised from its station between the triglyphs, but as the workmen endeavored to give it a position adapted to the projected line of descent, a part of the adjoining masonry was loosened by the machinery, and down came the fine masses of pentelican marble, scattering their white fragments with thunderous noise among the ruins. The Dizdar, seeing this, could no longer restrain his emotions and actually took his pipe from his mouth, and letting fall a tear, said in the most emphatic tone of voice, Telos! Enough! The end! 
uh, positively declaring that nothing should be, induce him to consent to any further dilapidations of the building. Looking up, we saw with regret the gap that had been made which all the ambassadors of the earth, with all the sovereigns they represent, aided by every resource that wealth and talent can now bestow, will never again repair. It's a little melodrama well, there. Well, Clark had it, yes, quite a, a bit. A little bit, but I mean... The, the Dizdar shed a tear? Actually took his pipe from his mouth? Yes. Some strong emotion. Some strong emotions, but at the same time... These it comes. It's like the Three Stooges working on this thing, <laughs> and so they let them so this metope fall and shatters into pieces. The projected line of descent. Yes. Yeah. So Pentelican marble, right? Mm -hmm. Mount Pentelos. Yes. Not far from Athens. Well, it's actually in Athens. You yeah. Might, you might say, but in antiquity, the town was um, much much smaller. Right. So Mount Pentelos was a great source for all of the marble that went into the Parthenon and other Acropolis structures. Right. And in the, the Parthenon Reconstruction Project, which we should talk about in another. Definitely. The, the, uh, the, the marble uh, that they quarry to fill in the gaps is taken from the same quarries. Yes. The original it's was, incredible. Yep. And uh, I'm no expert on marble, but I, I have studied a little bit for teaching the art and architecture course. Yeah. I could just say one thing is that the coloration in marble is caused by um, veins of mineral within the sandstone, right? Because yeah. marble is a kind of sandstone. It's really very soft. People think of it as hard, but it's soft, and that's why it can be carved. Okay, yeah. So if you've got little bits of iron and other minerals inside the lime, inside the sandstone, over time, oxidation, they it basically rusts, and that makes the marble into all these different colors. Right. But the pentelic marble, like the, uh, I think it's Carrera, Carrara uh, marble. Italian marble. Yeah, yeah. in Italy, um, doesn't really have any mineral admixture, so it stays this brilliant white right. over time. Oh, that yeah, very interesting. I mean, we're so accustomed to kind of think of these Greek monuments as kind of that golden yellow color. Yes. But when they were first quarried, it was that bright white marble. And then often yeah. painted, as we yes. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Painted. Um, Into colors that we'd probably consider kind of garish definitely. In, uh, today. You yeah. can still see flecks of it in the British Museum. Right. But that's a great quote here from Clark about what was happening. Right. And the, this part at the end, all the sovereigns they represent, they could never repair, but that's kind of been done, though, using more advanced technology of today. I guess you know, Clark couldn't see that far ahead. Right? No, and because Clark, he had no love for Elgin, so he 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 was he was happy to make him look giving bad. him the business a yeah, little bit. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, we get a little uh, maybe a sense of kind of Elgin's view on all of this um, coming out of a story which involves Clark again. He goes to Eleusis, the site of the of the famous mysteries. North. Yep. And. Um, and there he he um, he he wants to take away this large statue of a woman with a basket in her head, which was part of one of the the interior gates mm -hmm. um, there. And but he runs into the the the, uh, the local superstitions that say you can't touch the this lady because right. if she leaves, then our our crops will die. And so there's still kind of this this kind of um, adherence to she's Demeter among us, right? right. So if you take away the goddess of grain, um, we're we're left without a without a hope. And Clark. Come on, hmm. it's it's a you know, goofy superstition. Uh, he's going to take it anyway. Uh, he gets a he gets a Furman himself to take away the statue. And could, uh, could you just get these anywhere? Like, like at Seven Eleven vending right? machines. I'll take a Slurpee and <laughs> two, two Furmans, right? To go get the the Furman combo, right? right. So <laughs> apparently a riot breaks out. It's this whole uh, to do. Uh, Clark, got this great quote from Clark here. This well, this um, this quote is actually from Elgin. Oh, from Elgin. Yes. Okay. And so it's out of the situation that we, I think we get a bit of a sense of kind of how Elgin felt about all this. He pushes back against Clark. Well, he says, I mean, in some ways he's kind of supporting Clark. So okay. Clark ultimately takes the statue, gets it on a ship, and gets out of there. And Elgin he hears about the kind of the riot and, and the uh, brouhaha, the brouhaha, and he, he 
again, he too is like, what's wrong with these right. Greeks? And so he's, in a letter he writes, the Greeks of today do not deserve such wonderful works of antiquity. Moreover, they consider them worthless. Indeed, it is my divine calling to preserve these treasures unto all ages. Ooh, that's like a smoking gun, isn't it? Well, in, in a way- In terms of his attitude toward the whole thing. Towards the Greeks. Yes. But at the same time, he's also saying- um, He's also saying, I'm going to preserve these for all time. Well, his motive, right? I don't think anyone has ever doubted that his motive was preservation. He didn't, For himself. But he didn't profit from them. Right? He sold no. them to the British Museum. And at a huge loss. At a huge loss. Right. But he was hoping to profit from them. Okay. Right? Okay. <laughs> but I think it's a smoking gun in terms of his low view of contemporary Greeks. Oh, without a doubt. And that's what I think they're most upset about, yes, isn't right, it? Right. They're not deserving to house their own historical um, treasures. Yes, right. So he had um, he, he had all kinds of problems. Vretos talks about, you know, encountering the, kind of the local Greeks. And he was, I think, Elgin was, I think he was expecting uh, you know, unreasonably to find, you know, little Plato's and Socrates walking around. You know, he was expecting to, you know, to meet the Greeks and, and kind of see an echo of their greatness. I see. And he sees these people living in in deep poverty, right. uneducated, hmm. you know, their their language uh, is is uh, almost dead. There has to right? be a name for this kind of phenomenon, where you judge contemporaries by uh, luminaries of the past. Yeah, but even if you were in the past, not everyone you met in the age of Pericles would be a Socrates or an Alcibiades. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that human society would be quite variable, just as it is today. Right, right. But yeah, I think Elgin kind of walked into this, you know, kind of starry-eyed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and seeing it through these these kind of this, this very romantic lens. Right? This is why the guys at the Colosseum or the Colosseum, they dress up in plastic Roman armor, right? <laughs> right. This is who we really are. You can experience a little bit of what it was like. Right, right. Yeah. So I think El- what tourists want. Yeah. So I think Elgin was just, con- you know, incredibly disappointed by that. And uh, Vretos talks about how he didn't find amongst them any kind of real fervor for their own history. No love. No love so, or even knowledge. So in his mind, I can take this stuff. They don't even want exactly. it. The barbarians. Yeah, savages. The, the Turks maybe wanted a little bit, or at least they want to profit from my taking of it. Yeah. But that's it. But that's it. So, um, speaking of profit taking, yeah. Oh, do we are we up against it? We need to do some ads. Let's let's do the break. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Jeff, we have entered the new year now. We have. 2022? Yes, I'm excited. Are you? Yes, clean slate, resolutions. A tabula rasa? Yes. What's one Winkelian resolution? To uh, to read more. To read more? Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm a fairly active and, and consistent reader. I know you are. But things have uh, kind of dropped off for me lately, and so I want to get back on that pile of books yes. on my nightstand. Yes, and yeah. some of those are classical books, I assume? I like about half and half. All right. Yeah. And uh, where might you purchase some of these classical books? Some of my favorite ones have come from Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing. Yep. So they've, they've um, uh, for years now, for almost 50 years now, they've been uh, putting out affordable, um, approachable, digestible uh, uh, translations of many different works from across classical antiquity as many other, many other fields. I've used a lot in my own reading and my own courses. I think they're hitting the... Now, I'm going to take a big risk here. Uh-oh. I think they're hitting the sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. Is sesquicentennial 150? It's not, it that, is. not that old. Is it? No, it's they're not. not no. <laughs> they're hitting their 50-year mark. So what would that be? I mean, you, I don't you, you know. had the nice word for our 70th Yeah, I had episode. septuagesimal yes. for... 
The quinquagesimal. There you go. There we go. They're going to hit the quing. They have hit the quinquagesimal mark here. Excellent. So we can start saying 50, 50 years. years. That's right. Wow. Hackett's been in the business for 50 years of bringing those kinds of books, which you just adjectivally described yes. to our listeners. I did. Right. You go to the website, you find a broad diverse array of wonderful things to read. Yes. And so listeners, if you want to take advantage um, of uh, the opportunity that we offer here, go to hackitpublishing.com. Two T's. Two T's. Find the stuff you want. Put it in your little satchel there. Mm -hmm. Click it. grocery satchel. And um, put your title in there. And what do our listeners get? They get 20% off any title. Plus, they get free shipping, free, that's, that's which huge. is really remarkable. And, you know, as a favor to us, we think this is what they call in negotiation business. I'm sure Elgin used this often, a win-win. Win-win. Maybe it's even a win-win-win. Three wins? Well, Hackett wins. They yes. get more business. Right. The reader wins because they get a great discount on some fine reading material. And you and I win. How do we win? We win because we're winners. <laughs> 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 oh, someone's got to cut this. <laughs> All right. Go to hackitpublishing.com. Check it out. Thank you. This episode also brought to you by the Moss Method. Dave, tell us a bit about the Moss Method for learning Greek. I would love to. So the Moss Method, or Moss Method, as I call it, you know how it used to be called the Facebook? Yeah. Did you know about that? I did. I never liked that. No, then they dropped off the, and then they just called it Facebook. See, the same thing happened with I'm Batman. I'm trying to do this. Really? He was the, the Batman? He was the Batman? Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing something similar here. It's not the Moss Method. It's now just Moss Method. I like it. I'm thinking this is what's going to really make it take off. Okay. So Moss Method is a program I've designed to take take you from neophyte to erudite. That's correct. So if you start out with little or no knowledge of the Greek language, you can, over a fairly short period of time, amass a wealth of knowledge. I have been studying Greek for 27 years wow. now, a very long time, teaching it for nearly as long. And uh, everything that I've learned over the course of this time period, I'm putting it into these modules. So if you want to really gain confidence in Greek, if you already know some, but you don't have confidence, you want more depth, go to mossmethod.com, watch some of the free instruction that I've queued up. We have videos on Homer, we have videos on Herodotus, many elements of the New Testament, Plato, Xenophon's coming up, uh, some of the church fathers like Eusebius, we run the gamut. Fantastic. And I will show you that you can, with confidence and joy, Learn this language and use it. Sounds great. Now tell tell us about the uh, the office hours. The office hours. That's yep. correct. So each week I convene a Zoom office hours for anyone who is in the Moss program. We get together. It's usually Friday, and we talk about anything that they want to know about uh, Greek. Lately, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. I take them through it, read some verses, talk about the forms, the grammar. And uh, it's not a flanky. I know you were going to ask. It's me personally. <laughs> you yourself. Yes. All right. So, you know, I don't know everything about Greek, but I'm further along than a lot of people yeah. in my experience and uh, and knowledge. So I can help take you along as a psychopompos. Without a doubt. So if, some, if someone were interested, what, what, what should they do? They need to go to mossmethod.com and sign up. Fantastic. I don't know what they'd be waiting for. Check it out. All right. This episode, ladies and gentlemen, is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Jeff. Yes. Tell us about Ratio. Ratio. Ratio is uh, a company uh, based in Portland. Yes. Uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, run by the uh, incomparable Mark Hellweek. He out is there. really incomparable. He is. I have tried to comp him, but it's... He's not. He's not. Able yeah. to be comped. No, he's the man. He's the man. He invented this amazing coffee machine, mm -hmm. tremendous entrepreneurial akumen. Akumen. Akuman. 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 <laughs> Synchronous City. 
And he made this amazing machine, not one, but two amazing machines That's that right. brew fantastic coffee. And they look fantastic as well. Yes, the, the ratio six and the ratio eight, um, as our longtime listeners know uh, very well, I have the six. That's right. You've got the eight. I do. I love my machine. Uh, it brewed a perfect cup of coffee for me this morning. I had a pot too. If Phidias, the famous Athenian sculptor, were alive today, yes. he would only drink from the ratio eight. No, exactly. He would. He because would. he'd say, that's a beautiful that's a beautiful machine. He might see that machine and, and actually lay down his chisel. You think so? Right. <laughs> Parthenon would never have been built. That's right. Phidias yeah. would have been sitting at the base by the theater of Dionysus, just yeah. drinking racial coffee. Drinking racial coffee, or maybe in the, in the fetal position, knowing he could never create something <laughs> that beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if you, dear listener, would like to score yourself one of these fantastic machines, there are two things you can do. Jeff, what's the first one? Well, they can go to ratiocoffee.com. And they can enter the coupon code, uh, I believe it's ANCO. That's correct, ANCO. And that will get them... 15% off the 6 or the 8. Or the 8. The the 6 comes in three different finishes. You've got stainless steel, black matte, and white. Yep. The 8 comes in a wide variety of beautiful finishes, different kinds of woods, different kinds of colors. Yeah, so listener, go to the website and scroll through. Just check them out. They're beautiful to look at. And it's a well-put-together site. The second way that they can score a machine is we're still running our giveaway... Yes. Our sweepstakes bonanza. Yes. Extravaganza. Extravaganza. Jamboree. That's correct. You need to go to racialcoffee.com slash A-N-C-O. Enter your information to be entered into a drawing, but you will need the special little secret prize code that we're going to give out later in the episode. That's right. So keep listening and we'll drop that in there. That's right. Okay, Jeff, as we get back into it, where are we going next? Well, um, Lord Elgin, we're going we're to talk about kind of the, the, the decline, mm. uh, kind of the end of his, end of his life and, and kind of what happens to him. It's a, it's a fairly sad, depressing story. Mm. So, um, but with regard to the, to the marbles themselves, um, from about 1803 all the way until 1812, He's boxing up and creating uh, marbles and shipping them back to uh, to England. So they're not all on one boat. No, in fact, one they're of just them, going one boat at a time. One of them actually is going around the the. If you can help me, out, the, the, the Cape Sunian. It's not Cape Sunian. It's, it's no. the, the you know the fingers of the Peloponnese stick, stick down. It's kind of the first one that you right. go around. Uh, it's like, a Guthio is there the harbor? Yeah, Guthium, a Guthio. Not far from there, one of these boats sinks, uh, and tons of this marble goes down to the to the seafloor. Was it ever recovered? It was. They okay. remarkably kind of um, engineered it back up and got it back on a boat. Um, but in some ways, it's just kind of a, a um, harbinger for things to come. Mm. And so all along, he's he is he's depleted his personal funds um, in in buying these things, and he's he's taking out loan after loan after loan. He's he's securing loans from banks. He's securing loans from from friends, and he's just racking up all of this debt because he to, wants all of this stuff. He so wants badly. He, he wants all of this stuff so badly, um, and he thinks that well, you know, I can. He's gonna. One of his plans was he's going to put it up in Broom Hall and then charge admission, ah. and, which he actually does for so some time. So he's going to be kind of like a carnival hawker. Or exactly, something. exactly right. And so, um, I mean, some of these these marbles sit uh, on at the Piraeus in these crates for months. Now, the Piraeus is the harbor of Athens. Yes, right down from the Acropolis. It's about, I don't know, is it ten miles to the west. Yeah, yeah. Distance might be a little off. But yeah, yeah, you can easily see it from the Acropolis. Sure, sure. Um, and there's all these letters of Elgin that survive where, it, you know, he's 
in various places in Constantinople. He Constantinople, and, and he's back in England. He's trying to write letters and, and trying to figure out where are my crates, who's got them, where mm. are they going, who's paying for what. Was it UPS that was in charge here, or no? There was nothing like that. Okay, course, right. It was it was an absolute nightmare, and he's worrying himself sick about all, all this about all of this stuff, and um, so you know he ultimately takes up. You know a number of, of sculptures off the off the Parthenon, um, most famously stuff from the, the pediment, right. both the east and the west. So we should talk about a pediment just for a moment, sure. because we don't want to assume too much knowledge as we're going through this. Yes, but the pediment is the triangular portion above um, the east. It's a rectangular building. The Parthenon is basically a rectangular building. Mm-hmm. So on the west side, there's the western pediment, which mm-hmm. shows the scene of uh, the contest yes. between uh, Poseidon and Athena as to who would be the tutelary deity of the city. Right. It wasn't named Athens at the time. Right. The east pediment shows the birth of Athena from the head of Zeus. Right. And one of the really interesting innovations architecturally was that some of the earliest pediments, you know, when you have a rectangular building and you have two sides of a sloped roof on each side, or roof, as they say in some parts of the country, how do you say it? Roof. 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 You're going to have a triangle, a triangle formed uh, when you slope those two uh, roof parts over a rectangle. Yes. And so they began to put statuary in there. Mm -hmm. The problem, of course, is that um, at the center of the triangle, there's much more space than in the corners. So if the figures are the same size, you've got a wee little guy down in one corner, and in the center you've got a massive standing guy, and right. the scale is all off. It's off, right? Or, or you have to have him laying down or kneeling. Well, that's right? what happened. That yeah. was the brilliant solution to this problem. Those in the corner are reclining, like the rivers of Athens, Alpheus and Peneus. Mm-hmm. And then those uh, further along in the triangle are seated, typically. Yes. And those in the center standing. are standing. Right. It's brilliant, really. Right. And in the, the east side, you, also, you have those wonderful horse heads of the, of yes. the chariots kind of, you know, right. going up and Chariot going down. Chariot of Salinas, right? Yes. The, the moon god right. going up and going down. So when if you visit Athens today, when you approach the Acropolis the way they have it now, you approach it from the west side. And which gives the misleading impression that that's the front door. Right. It's actually the back. It's up the Propylia. Yes. Yeah, I should have said Cellini. I misspoke. I said Salinas. Cellini, yeah. I don't know if anybody caught it, but it's going to bother me for weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, Greek temples are built facing east. To yes, greet, on an the east-west axis. Rising, greet the rising sun. Right. So he has he um, he takes a bunch of the stuff, boxes it up, it finds his way back home, and actually sits in a warehouse or in the 19th century equivalent of a warehouse for months. And, and one of the Caryatids. we got to mention that. Yes. That's really important. Yeah, very important. So really- north of the Parthenon is the Temple of Athena Polius. Yes. Also called the Temple to uh, Poseidon. Mm-hmm. Um, also called the Erechtheum. Yes. It, it seems like it looks today like a, you know, a temple that was built by a committee that couldn't agree on anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's built with three ionic porches and it's... It's uh, shoehorned into very un, uh, inhospitable terrain. Yes, exactly. So on the south side of this building, there's the porch of the Caryatids, mm-hmm. and we should devote an episode to that because yeah. it's really fascinating. Right. But a Caryatid is basically a pillar that's shaped like a woman. Right. And the top uh, of the, the building is supported on her head. Yes. And there were eight eight of these uh, six of these originally. Six, that's right. Yeah, so kind of four in the front and then, and then uh, Correct. one kind of flanking, going right. back. Right, so, um, and all of these, uh, well, not all of them except one today, stand in the Acropolis Museum. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a blank, they have an empty podium where they, they say they're waiting, these these women are waiting for their sister to return. So, from the British Museum. From the British Museum, right. So he, take, he takes one of these. And so... Um, 
by some estimates, he he shells out in his own personal funds and through loans seventy five thousand pounds, which is roughly equivalent to about eight million dollars. That's a lot. It's a lot, right? And he had no. It's a lot of quid. It's a lot of quid, and he did not. He he was not good for it, mm. as, as they say. So, um, and then add to the to this to this that nightmare. Um, he's traveling home and he makes his way through France. And while he's in France, this uh, I I'm forgetting the, all the details, but some kind of treaty between France and England breaks down. And they start rounding up um, uh, expats. They start rounding up the, the Brits and putting them under house arrest. Mm. And he finds himself caught in this. And so it's not like he's sent to you know, you know bread and water prison. He's under house arrest in, in Paris. And he's probably doing okay. He's probably doing okay. Three croissants per day. Right. But he's going out of his mind because he can't get to his sculptures. And, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know. He's trying to you know get letters sent and receiving letters. And these have become an obsession for him at this point. It does seem so. It does seem so, right? And I mean, and of course, he's he's he his entire net worth, such as it is, is wrapped up in these things. And right. So you know, without controlling them, he's he's um, he's ruined. And then um, along the way, he, uh, Mary starts having an affair mm. um, with a younger man, and he finds out about it, and he um, he he takes her to court, and they get dragged through the press. Into- so is this where you begin to have a little more sympathy for I, Elgin? I do. I mean, the guy just went through. He went through a nightmare, right? Um, and I, 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 I should say, um, he, I, I didn't, uh, I don't think I was fair enough to him earlier on. He proved to be a very good diplomat. Hmm. He was, he actually, he actually furthered British interests. He did his job, right? All while you know losing his nose, right? Trying to losing to, his wife, losing his wife, and and um, losing his marbles, losing, exactly losing his marbles, right? And then being under house arrest for almost three years. That's that's going to be in terrible. Paris, uh, just to get desperate to get home. So he's, then the, he's unable to see his wife. He's unable yeah. to see his children. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so they had sympathy. children as they well. They did. Yeah, mm. they had. I think they had ended up having three children. Okay, and and one that didn't survive. Um, now the British government comes to his rescue. Well, in part, kind of. Right? So so tell us that part he, of the story. He tries to display the marbles at at his home, and he. I mean, it's it's. A big story, and people are coming to see it. But he realizes very quickly he's not going to recoup his money. So he tries. He says, "Okay, I'll sell them to the British government." And he wants them. He first he, he says, "I'll you know buy them for ninety thousand pounds." He wants right. to make a profit. Yeah. At least in, or okay, oh, now I just want to break even. And the British government knows that they have. They have all the cards. All the cards. In, the in this negotiation. Right. And so they ultimately um, offer him, and he very humbly takes an offer of £35,000, which is less than half of wow. what he paid out. You ever right. gotten a deal that bad? No. I, no. No. I mean, I've got, I've, I've bought some used cars that didn't end up very well. They right. They suckered in. Right. But uh, nothing like this. No, this is pretty serious. This is, this, it's terrible. And so he, he goes back to Brummel, and he kind of fades out of view. He ultimately remarries. Mm. Um and then dies in 1841. Mary ends up uh, marrying the guy she had the affair with, mm. but she she kind of fades from view, and he dies mostly kind of penniless. Hmm. It's really quite sad. In his mid 70s, right? Mi- in his, yes, exactly. About 75, if right. I'm doing my arithmetic correctly. And I, I forget exactly the date, but at some point, the the marbles wind up in the British hmm. Museum, where they remain to this very and day. How many times have you seen them there? Uh, twice. Okay. Yep. I think that I have seen them about five times. Five times. Yes, yeah. I love the British. Museum. I love the British Museum too, and the display there is it. It is quite extraordinary. It's astonishing, right? So they're they're kept in this room that's built to the specifications of the Parthenon itself. Right. Mm-hmm. You take the tube to the Russell Square station. You, is that the one? Russell yep. Square. Yeah. You hop out and you walk around. Uh, you pay, you know, nothing. It's right? free. It's a donation. You can drop a few pounds into the 
into the, the box. The till there by the door. Mm-hmm. And you could spend a week in there. Oh, yeah. Just astounding. And, of course, I went directly to the marbles the first time I was there. Yes. Because I just had to see them. I had to feast my eyes on them. Absolutely. Right. And they are, they are wonderfully displayed. I mean, and then, you know, a couple rooms over, you, you'll hear, hey, there's the Rosetta Stone. Yes. There's that sarcophagus we were talking about in the Alexander episode. That yes. Where perhaps held his body at one point. That's right. There are all the uh, Assyrian um, sculptures as yeah. well. It's it's Tiglath Pileser. Yeah, as a collection altogether, it's it's unmatched. It is really phenomenal. Right. So we come down to the controversy of you know where should these marbles end up? So um, what one thing that really struck me that I was not aware of is that um, his taking of the marbles was not celebrated for the most part back in England. It was mm. not seen as kind of this triumph. That, so it was criticized yes, from the beginning. From the beginning, and um, uh, he did not. He was not a popular guy. I don't know if he, I mean, he had a, there was kind of a public, um, the public had kind of an axe to grind um, against him, but it was amplified by Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. And he wrote- Who was a bit of a vandal himself, let's just say. He was famously he carved on the temple of Poseidon at Sunian. You can still see it, it says Byron right That's there. That's right. Yeah. So uh, maybe he shouldn't speak so Carving much. is okay, but <laughs> theft is not. <laughs> Well, Byron was a, he was a bit of a flamboyant dilettante himself. Yeah, he was. But he wrote these poems in which he excoriates uh, Elgin. Can I read some of it? Please do. Okay. So I have a, uh, um, yeah, a small small section from one of these poems. All right. Yeah. But who of all the plunderers of yon fame on high where Pallas lingered, loath to flee, the latest relic of her ancient reign, the last, the worst, dull spoiler, who was he? Blush, Caledonia, such thy son could be, England, I joy no child he was of thine. Thy freeborn men should spare what once was free, yet they could violate each saddening shrine, and bear these altars o'er the long, reluctant brine. What? Shall it e'er be said by British tongue, Albion was happy in Athena's tears? Though in thy name the slaves her bosom wrung, tell not the deed to blushing Europe's ears. The ocean queen, the free Britannia, bears the last poor plunder from a bleeding land. Yes, she whose generous aid her name endears tore down those remnants with a harpy's hand, which envious eld forbore and tyrants left to stand. Should I keep going? Please do. Finish it right. up. Yeah. Cold is the heart, fair Greece, that looks on thee, nor feels as lovers o'er the dust they loved. Dull is the eye that will not weep to see thy walls defaced, thy moldering shrines removed. By British hands, which it had best behooved to guard those relics ne'er to be restored. Cursed be the hour when from their isle they roved and snatched thy shrinking gods to northern climes aboard. Strong stuff. Yes, he's angry. He's very angry. I also like how he gets a little kind of a anti-Scottish element in there. Yeah, blush, blush Caledonia. Caledonia. Such thy son could be England. I joy no child he was of thine. That's so, right. Thank goodness he wasn't from England. We expect that out of the, <laughs> the Scots. Scots. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, kind of rough and rowdy, right? Um, that one. I'm just curious if the, the, his line, which envious eld forbore, do you, do you get that? I'm reference? not sure what, I'm not that, sure is, what that is. No. Either. Yeah. Tore down those remnants with a harpy's hand. Which envious eld forbore, and tyrants left to stand. I am guessing this is a, uh, I don't know, a reference to the Turks in some way. That it, it seems so. I just so don't know what the. the we should have done specific, our research. Uh, yeah, we Ron, should. are you gonna <laughs> catch us on this? Help us out, Ron. Maybe next week we'll issue an additional cordregendum. Yes, I just like to say cordregendum. You like to roll that. I R, do. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's trilling. So. The uh, so it seems there was a lot of kind of 
sentiment uh, in England kind of against keeping them, send them back, mm. um, and never should have been taken, which surprised me. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I kind of came to, with a, kind of this cartoonish, that this kind of that, though the British, the empire, their plunderers, they, yeah. they would see this as spoils of war right. or something like that. But no. So what's the case for keeping them? Let's get Hitchens here so back Hi- in. Hitchens, he, he summarizes this in this article. He says that uh, basically there are three reasons that have been used uh, over the last couple hundred uh, plus years. The first reason is, or was, that the return of the marbles might set a precedent that would empty the world's museum collections. So the idea is that, well, if we send these back, isn't every museum around the world going to want their stuff back? So you're and- only allowed to... What, you're only allowed to possess things that originated in the geographical vicinity of the museum? Right. And so... How, how do you feel about local museums, by the way? Um, I've, I've gone through very good ones and gone through very bad I've ones. I've mostly been through bad ones. Bad ones right? When I go to a local museum, I'm locally bored. Right. Typically. Well, I think that a lot of these places don't have a lot of money to throw around. That's a good point. But Hitchens dismisses this by saying that the Greeks only want this stuff back. They're not asking for... Okay. He's so asking, the counter-argument is illegitimate because they're just asking for a specific thing. Right. And, and he actually goes on to say that. He says the Greeks actually, in terms of like you know, other fragments and other pieces under statue, they're actually trying to get more of their heritage into museums around the world. Hmm. But they want this stuff back. Now, I don't know about that that quick dismissal. I, you know, this is... Well, the Siphonian treasury, some elements of that, you know, that we're at Delphi. That, yeah. That's in Athens. I mean, that's in uh, Britain. That's true. So, Right, right. So I, I'm not so sure if that, if you know, it, it means he's, it's a slippery slope argument. Right? Yes, Obviously, it is. Right. But at the same time, you know, we live in an era where, you know, you know worries about cultural appropriation and and um, legitimate or not, I could see this kind of starting off kind of a domino effect. Okay. Right. So, but uh, Hitchens says no, they just want this stuff back, and and that's it. Uh, the second um, reason is that more people can see the marbles in London. This gonna... seems like the weakest of the three. Mm-hmm. Well, There's 12 million people in London, more or less. There's 5 million in Athens, 11 million in the whole of Greece. I guess so. I, guess I like maybe... to throw around numbers. You're right. <laughs> I guess London more is kind of a crossroads of the world than Athens. That, fair. Know, right? But maybe it's a chicken and egg kind of an argument. Mm. Bring the marbles to Athens and maybe the... If you build it, they will come. Yes. Mm. I, yeah, I don't really think people are going to London to see the marbles, but there is a kind of an effect of... Mm-hmm. Uh, cachet that comes if you have some great um, objects sure. of art. Right. And then the third um, objection is that the Greeks have nowhere to put the stuff or to uh, display them. Which was true until... Until this new museum opened. 2009. Right. Did you go to the old museum that was on the Acropolis? No. What I'm, a dump. I've never been right. to that. Yeah, it was it was awful. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you had, like the tube fluorescent lighting that was kind of I... crackling. And, you the know, guard they, sitting on the folding chair. Yes. And behind, things were in this behind this plexiglass and it was not lit from the inside it was it was horrible what do you think about the museum now as it stands i love it you like it i do i, I think it's do you remember fantastic. looking at it from the acropolis yes and they have the three uh, column drums right you can see three levels there's supposed to be three different column drums set akimbo yes akimbo like that that's a good word yeah i couldn't find a better one but <laughs> set akimbo to show that just like the objects that they house so I think this idea is clever, though. It's about the only thing I like about the museum. Really? Yeah. Oh, my. Well, I like the contents, but architecturally the rest I'm not, I'm okay. not keen on. It's too modern. Okay. Oh, okay. So I like okay. modern architecture, steel and glass, yeah. but not housing ancient objects. Okay. It just seems off. I love, I, what I love about it is that um, it's so open and 
and, and so transparent that you know whenever you walk on that the the side facing the Acropolis, you're constantly looking back at the at the uh, monuments. That is phenomenal. Yes, for sure, that is phenomenal. Right, and the recreation at the top. Yes, right. It's exactly proportional to the Parthenon itself, yes. and you're able to see the metopes and the frieze, uh, not eye level, but in a way that no ancient observer could have ever seen them. Right. Because they were um, as, as much as 18 feet away, yes. I think. Yeah, exactly. Quite a distance. Right, right. Have you seen the little video there about what happened to the Parthenon? It's on the third floor. Yeah, oh yeah. And you yeah. see these little tiny Christians crawling over it, defacing it. <laughs> a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> There's a little bit of license taken, poetic license taken there. I suppose. And then they show the explosion, right, when the Venetians... 1687. Right. Yeah. Was the Venetians who were storing gunpowder? Yeah. The, I think it was... The Venetians were the one bombing it, okay. or lobbing the, the cannonballs. Right. And, and the Turks had stored gunpowder uh, yes. in part of the cella. And it blew out right. a good part of the southern the southern row yeah. columns. Right. Um, so, yeah the, yeah, the little Christians defacing. Right. <laughs> Cartoon guys crawling all over. That's right, I, I don't think there that. was a whole lot of that, honestly. No, no, yeah, yeah I, I think it's overstated. Great right. gift shop, fantastic gift shop. The last time I was there, uh, with traveling with some friends, I hope they're listening. Uh, my wife and I, we walked out on the little patio there and ordered, you know, some delicious coffee and yes. $25 salad and ate in the brilliant sunlight and looked up on the Parthenon. So yeah. the setting is phenomenal. Phenomenal, but a little bit too modern for you. Well, uh, I like that, but yeah. I like things that are consistent. So if it's going to be modern, it should be all that. Yeah. It doesn't seem quite right for something so modern to be housing something so ancient. Fair enough. I really like consistency. Right. I What I, I do like is... is I like how the whole museum is up on these pillars because as they were Correct. digging the foundation, they found all these. That is incredible. These remains. Right? And as you're walking into the museum, you can see all of the excavations, some of which are ongoing. Right below your feet. Right. It's Another really nice element, I should say, is once you get inside and you begin uh, going to the, what is the second floor, you go up an uh, enormous glass ramp, right? ramp yes. which is the dromos. Yes, yes. Right? It. The dromos, the runway that you would take up the Propylia to get onto the Acropolis. Right. That's a nice touch. That is a really nice touch, right. So to bring this back to kind of the controversy, Hitchens was, he wrote this article kind of on the occasion of the opening of the museum. Mm -hmm. He's saying, listen, that argument absolutely holds no more water. Right. I mean, they have a room that's empty waiting for these right. these these marbles to be to be returned, and he's saying that, you know, there's, he, Hitchens saying there's no more, mm. all of these arguments fall apart. And it's time for these things to come home. Okay. Yeah. So if I could snap my fingers, I yeah. would probably say, return the marbles. Return the marbles. Okay. But I don't have the animus toward Elgin and toward the, you know, the whole history of the event oh, yeah. that I think a lot of people do. Right. I think Elgin made some, I think he was a, um, uh, yeah, I think he was a, well, he was a complicated man. Like we're, we're all complicated humans. Right. right? And, and I think he was. Good he, motives, bad motives. Right. Good he, decisions, bad decisions. Right. He, he started with these motives of, of kind of a love of Greece and he wanted to bring that back home to, 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 to Britain. Uh, his personal ambition, maybe some greed kind of took over and he, he overreached. But I don't, I, he's no longer for me kind of this villain hmm. that was there to plunder and to take and to claim for Britain and, and uh, hmm. to remove it from Greece. Um, so if you could snap your fingers, where would the marbles be? They'd be back in, they'd be in the new all museum. Right. right. Maybe someday we will get to go to Athens and see them there. See them all together. I'd I love to see that. Yeah. yeah. I haven't been to Greece in, uh, well, I guess just about two years, almost three years. Yeah, same for me. And haven't been to uh, Britain since, um, I guess, about four years now. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hmm. Time to go back. Yes. All right. All right. Well, we got to wrap this up, we, don't we? we? Yeah, we got to get out of here. Or I think we're glancing we're, at the clock time. there, Winkle. Exactly. We're, 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 <laughs> yeah. we're out of time. Right. So what would we like the uh, the listener to do if they're willing? Well, if, they would, if they're willing, um, they would subscribe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, leave a review at your favorite uh, listening platform. Subscribe to the podcast to- via... Uh, Podbean or Spotify, yes, or um, Apple iTunes, yes, right? or our, our YouTube channel. Yes, our YouTube channel needs some subscribers. Yep. You can watch our hijinks, such as they are, uh, in person, yep. so to speak. Yep. Um, if you've got an idea for a show, if you want a shout out, we we love getting those. We've got some great ideas uh, recently. Drop us a note. You can write to Dave at Dave at Ad Nauseam. Dot com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Get that same V in there. That's right. Uh, we need to thank Mishka, Mishka. Fernando, yep. who does a lot of the video processing, a lot of the audio stuff makes this all look really good. We need to thank a man who's in the studio with us this evening. Agricola. Agricola, our videographer. Yep. Uh, we have to tease that code, right? Well, the code, yes. Yeah, for the racial giveaway, it's 6567. 6567. 6567. So racialcoffee.com slash A-N-C-O, and then the four-digit code. So Excellent. you can win a free one. All right. Um, uh, uh, shout out to thanks to our great musicians. That's right. Ken, Ken Tamplin, Tamplin, Scott Vincent. Yep. They give us the intro music, the outro, the bumper stuff. Very appreciative. Great stuff. And uh, what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to start a short philosophical series. Okay. And this is going to be on an author who is a favorite of mine, a man on whom I wrote my dissertation, a yes. man who needs no introduction. That would be... Marcus Tullius Cicero. Excellent. We're going to look at his De Natura Deorum, The Nature of the Gods. It's a three-book dialogue. Not sure exactly how many episodes we're going to devote to it. I know other people are talking about Cicero online. Mm. We're going to give it our own unique spin. Fantastic. Sounds great. And you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. Yep. The gustatory parting shot comes from the famous novelist Vladimir Nabokov. Mm, a Lolita guy. Right? Did he write Lolita? I don't know. I believe he did. I like this quote. Okay. (laughs) Uh, He wrote The Real Life of Sebastian Knight. Okay. Don't know the book, haven't read it. Have you? I have not. Let's hope it's not something terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Since this is a family show. But here's the quote I like. He says, and I'm going to ask you some questions about it. The dining room was curiously impersonal. Like all places where people eat. Is your dining room curiously impersonal? No, it's very, very homey and warm. Yeah. 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 Well, we have a lot of um, homey elements in our dining room, but they don't get a lot of attention, right? Because you're very much focused on the food and the people. So Everything is a kind of background. So that's what makes it impersonal? I would say so. Okay. So you're is, your name, is your name scratched on the table or anything? Is My son, when he was four years old, scratched his name on the table. It's still he? there. So <laughs> says Ian. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the dining room is curiously impersonal, like all places where people eat. Perhaps because food is our chief link with the common chaos of matter rolling about us. That's nice. I like that part. I like that too. Thank you for listening. Thanks. And watching. Thanks.